Welcome to Cleveland Clinic Cardiac Consult, brought to you by the Seidel and Arnold Miller Family Heart, Vascular, and Thoracic Institute at Cleveland Clinic. The novel and innovative uh, technologies that are uh, emerging in the uh, space of, of pacing, and I want to do that within the context of a, uh, a case presentation because in my mind, as, as uh, Dr. Taraci mentioned, I serve in the role as the research director. The best research is the stuff that really jumps off the page of the journal, or nowadays, you know, jumps off the, the uh, mobile device, the tweet uh, about it, and really kind of provokes us and, and challenges us to incorporate uh, new technologies and new care pathways into our everyday clinical practice. So we'll focus on uh, some of these new strategies within the context of, of a case. And I'd also like to, um, to talk a little bit about um, the things that are, that are focused on the last year, so sort of uh, things that have emerged within the last year, there's a lot of data on them, and then things that are within a year or so, either currently in clinical trials or will be in clinical trials within the next year or so. There's so much in the pipeline in this space that it can be a little overwhelming if you start to look a little too far into the future. Um, but speaking of research, um, uh, there's really, as you can see, a lot of phenomenal original research uh, in our group, uh, as you saw with Dr. Tracci's presentation and, and yesterday's presentations. And if you're interested in following uh, up on our research, uh, you can follow us on Twitter. We do use the uh, hashtag CCEP research uh, to uh, track uh, a lot of our group's uh, original contributions and to really hopefully engage uh, with some discussion uh, with you, all of you, to continue uh, going forward beyond the scope of these meetings. So I want to frame our discussion within the case. Uh, there's a very fresh case uh, just a few weeks ago, as a matter of fact, a 67-year-old female with refractory atrial arrhythmias. She had persistent atrial fibrillation and flutter, difficult to control heart rates despite the use of AV nodal agents, very symptomatic with fatigue, dyspnea, and a pretty significant diastolic heart failure. Uh, she was coming to one of uh, my partners uh, for a second opinion. She had been treated uh, with a mini maze, left atrial appendage clipping, plus four additional uh, prior catheter ablations, uh, one of which included a CTI ablation, another of which included uh, a flutter mania in the left atrium, and uh, was developing recurrence despite DC cardioversion, antiarrhythmics with our top shelf drugs, uh, efficacy-wise, defudalide amiodarone, uh, very significant uh, comorbidities, uh, diabetes, hypertension, obesity, which is bordering on uh, morbid obesity, despite the fact that she had had a prior gastric uh, type of surgical intervention, sleep apnea uh, with uh, CPAP uh, treatment. So really a lot of the um, uh, risk factors that uh, Dr. Sanders had been talking about in terms of the modification and the importance of that really wasn't happening uh, for this lady. Uh, so this is her EKG. And, you know, you look at that and you say, if I hadn't told you all that, and you looked at that and say, oh, that's a low-hanging fruit flutter, we can go in and knock that out. But with that kind of a context, I think it does give some people some pause. And I'll show you the uh, echocardiogram. These should both animate here momentarily. These are images that were obtained outside organization. Um, it was reported as mild LVH, grade 2 diastolic dysfunction, preserved overall LVF, just a mild amount of left atrial enlargement and uh, just some moderate MR there. So I really kind of want to challenge you guys, uh, wake you up this morning to think about what would you do if you were 
my colleague and you were seeing this patient in the office, would you perform an AV junction ablation with a transvenous RV pacemaker, AV junction with a uh, leadless pacemaker, AV junction ablation with a His bundle pacemaker, reload amiodarone, cardiovert, and redo surgical weight loss? Uh, or are you crazy, man? Get in there, map and ablate that flutter. And what I love about this question in this case is it really does separate out uh, the hardcore ablationists from the hardcore device uh, 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 physicians. And you know, I sort of think of myself as, as uh, one of the docs in a group with a foot in both camps. And so I, I'm just curious, uh, how many people in the audience uh, like A? Okay, I see a hand go up. Uh, how many people like B, the idea of a leadless for this patient? Okay, I see another hand. Um, hiss bundle, AV junction hiss. Everybody loves the hiss. Don't diss the hiss. <laughs> uh, reload amio, cardivert, uh, redo surgical weight loss. Anybody? No? Okay. Uh, and how many people want to get after that flutter? Anybody want to get after the flutter? Dr. Wozni wants to get after that flutter. He wants to munch that flutter. Okay, well, that's another good question. We'll come back to that. I didn't list that as an option because in this case the LVF was preserved, but that's a great question that my colleague uh, raises. So this patient underwent an AV junction ablation with a single chamber transvenous pacemaker uh, performed by my colleague. Uh, and very interesting, this patient became acutely hypotensive in the EP lab after the AV junction ablation. BP 70 over 40, cardiogenic shock immediately required uh, the use of pressors, and of course, in, in a procedure like that, you immediately think a tamponade, and they did an echo in the lab, and they did not find uh, any effusion, and I'll show you what they found in a moment, but this patient became critically ill almost immediately. Uh, transfer to the CICU, uh, required a balloon pump, arterial line, and a PA catheter to uh, optimize all these uh, hemodynamics, and unfortunately, that freshly placed lead was dislodged by the PA catheter resulting in a need for a brief amount of CPR. Uh, temporary active fixation lead was, was placed and the patient was uh, kept going. So this was the echo that was done basically right at the time of, of, of this procedure. And you can see in contrast to the previous um, uh, uh, echo, uh, this, this was not a happy ventricle. Uh, very just grossly desynchronous ventricle. And you can see that that desynchrony has really severely restricted the posterior leaflet of the mitral valve and leading to pretty severe uh, mitral regurgitation. So the EF is down, the uh, MR is now severe, and this patient's in trouble. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, pacing-induced cardiomyopathy, kind of leverage this case to talk a little bit about the data and some of the mechanisms of pacing-induced cardiomyopathy. There really is a lot of interesting science behind this, and this is not my work. I've tried to cite all the preclinical scientists here that have, have contributed these things, but you can divide this into the acute and the chronic types of changes. And so in the acute sense, there is both intra and interventricular dyssynchrony. And I think most people are familiar with those concepts that the right-left dyssynchrony and the left-left dyssynchrony within the wall of the, the left ventricle. But this is a really interesting concept of, of intramural dyssynchrony. So it's an endo-epi type of dyssynchrony that's happening with the, uh, with the type of non-physiologic activation of the ventricle. And then in the chronic sense, there are a lot of uh, cellular changes. There are changes in the way that the left ventricle 
rotationally contracts with torsion and DPDT. That results in fibrosis. That results in cellular changes. And actually, even data to suggest that there are regional perfusion abnormalities. So you get areas and pockets of ischemia in the ventricle because of the abnormal mechanical performance. So it's replicating the effect of coronary artery disease, even though uh, these patients, uh, you know, don't have coronary disease as the uh, etiology of their cardiomyopathy. So this is some data that we published a couple of years ago that really shows that we, as a field, do not estimate, do we underestimate how prevalent pacing-induced cardiomyopathy is. These are patients that underwent a, uh, a pacemaker for complete heart block as an indication, many of whom did recover AV nodal uh, conduction, and uh, by four and a half years, one in eight patients had developed a pacing-induced cardiomyopathy with very strict definitions of a drop in EF below 40%. And very interestingly, there was no difference in apical versus non-apical RV lead placement when we did a multivariable analysis. And that generated a lot of pushback from us. But the UPenn group did the same type of study. And they had the same exact finding that there was no difference in terms of putting the lead in the apex versus off the apex. And at the same time, you know, to Jack's point um, about CRT, 84% responder rate for those that did get CRT upgraded. So we know that CRT is a very powerful tool uh, to treat these types of patients. So now I've given you this case and I've shown you how this thing's really went sideways for this patient. So what now? CRTP upgrade, Hispundle pacemaker upgrade, or call the priest. How many people want to do a CRTP upgrade? Of course, Dr. Ricard, and I'm seeing a large number of people that like that. I like that as well. How many people want to go right for the Hiss bundle? Okay, so the, the don't diss the Hiss enthusiasm is not quite as strong as it was. How many people think we're just time to call the priest? And Okay, that's not, that's not what we do. All right, so this is what we went with the CRT upgrade. This is when I got involved in the case, and um, uh, my fellow uh, Kyle is right here with me. He was uh, with me for this case. So we entered the CS, and sure enough, with all this ablation that has been done, this, this coronary sinus was just absolutely destroyed. You can see the animation here, but that didn't d deter the good Dr. Monsager and I. We tried to get across uh, this very tight stenosis. We saw sort of a lateral branch on the other end of it, and we thought maybe if we can get across it and we can get one of our interventional colleagues to come in and give us a venoplasty. We might make some headway. We did get the wire down there. We consulted with one of our interventionalists who said, no way, this thing is just too, too uh, messed up to, uh, to get that. So it was interesting because we were looking at the prospect of a very freshly ablated AV junction that was edematous, and we didn't have a Hiss signal that was intrinsic to MAP, and so we used some of the newer uh, deliverer uh, deliver sheath, and we did a pace mapping technique, and we were able to get this result, which you can see the QRS uh, there, and you know I can leave that uh, for you guys to decide whether that's selective or non-selective. It looks like there is a small isoelectric segment in some of the leads, but Overall, when you compare that to the RV-paced QRS uh, post-initial procedure in the bottom, I think we would all agree that that's a better resynchronized ventricle at the top. We got better thresholds with the unipolar configuration, so we went with that, which is why you see the exaggerated pacing spikes there. But speaking of exaggerated, the response to this treatment was pretty amazing. Uh, this, this lady, uh, you can see the position of our Hiss lead there on the x-ray. Sorry, it's a little bit um, uh, uh, underpenetrated. But but the idea is that she came off uh, balloon pump and vasopressors and idotropes right away and was discharged in good shape. And I'll show you the echo. 
And just so I'm being totally intellectually honest, I mean, this is a two-chamber view, and they always say that the MR looks worse in the two-chamber view. So I'm showing you the two-chamber view so you can compare it to the previous, and you can see that, uh, that, the, that the valve, uh, the restoration of the synchrony in this ventricle really did help that MR acutely. And so with the ventricle squeezing the way it is uh, on the left-hand panel, it's no wonder that she came out of cardiogenic shock so quickly and, and did so well and was discharged and is doing, is doing fine. Uh, so, so his bundle versus RV pacing. So there's a lot of emerging data on this within the last year. And the Geisinger group and others have really uh, been uh, active in putting a lot of their, their data out into the space. And so it's very clear that when you uh, pursue his bundle pacing, you definitely get a more narrow QRS. You definitely get uh, preservation of your ejection fraction compared to RV pacing as well as preservation of uh, patient functional class. And in terms of the long-term outcome studies, uh, as shown on the left-hand part of the screen, when compared to RV pacing, there is a reduction in this primary endpoint of death, transplantation, and hospitalizations for heart failure. Selective versus non-selective. So that's, again, another controversy within this field. Uh, again, you can see the differences between the two. Uh, with uh, the good Dr. Sharma's uh, figure there in the sense that selective is supposed to have that isoelectric segment and really have a QRS that it really uh, replicates the, the native conduction. The non-selective, it's definitely more narrow uh, than, than what you would have with RV pacing, but, but there is some slurring there suggesting that there is some ventricular recruitment uh, as well, or at least the adjacent fibers. And again, some outcomes data that suggests that overall there's no statistically significant difference between the two groups, but it seems to be that if you chose which uh, graph you'd like to be on, the red or the blue, I think most of us would want to be on the red with the selective capture. So his bundle pacing versus CRT. So the his bundle world has expanded, and it's now not only consuming a lot of the traditional RV pacing indications, but now really gobbling up a lot of the CRT indications. And really, this was a, uh, the, the first uh, foray into this was presented at HRS uh, this past May. The good Dr. Tung over at the uh, University of Chicago and, and uh, colleagues. Patients randomized with traditional CRT indications, left bundles, uh, HIS versus uh, uh, biventricular CRT. And there really were a lot of crossovers in this group, which I think is, is very interesting because it showed that the operators were very nimble. They, if they didn't like what they were seeing with the HIS, they crossed them over to the CRT group and vice versa. And the bottom line on this is that both groups did well. Both groups had improvement in their LVEF and in their uh, QRS duration, but the HIS-CRT was not superior. So it really got a, a, a label as sort of a very negative study, but it was really sort of a small uh, foray into this space. And, and I think if you look at the types of delivery tools and things like that, I think that we're going to see as a field um, you know, more um, uh, improvement in, in those tools uh, in the coming years. And I think our colleagues and partners in industry may, may comment on that later this morning. So I want to come back and just circle back to what would have been a potential option. Some of you guys raised your hand that AV junction ablation and leadless. Uh, this was a little hands-on paper that uh, uh, Mike Lloyd and El, El Shami and Nielsen and I put together for heart rhythm to talk about the, uh, the two different uh, platforms, Nanostim and, and Micron. You know, having uh, been an implanter of both, uh, I can say that they both are really uh, terrific platforms. And I think they have different strengths. Uh, 
and, and, and weaknesses. And, and I think this is an area where, again, we're, we're likely to see industry make iterative improvements in this technology, in this space, and like many other areas, probably over time see a confluence in some of the design elements that are successful and moving away from the ones that, that have been unsuccessful. But one of the things that we really do like about the, the NanoStem is its retrievability. What you uh, see there is uh, a patient of mine who, uh, three years out, required uh, removal of the NanoStem. And it's actually a very easy procedure to remove uh, these devices. Um, people who have not had any previous experience with snaring are able to, to uh, engage the button, engage the device, untorque it, and remove it for the body. I am an ice enthusiast in general, but I have found that this particular use case for ice is really terrific because you can see the difference in how the back end of the, of the button sits in relation to the tricuspid annulus, and it really gives you a lot of useful information about how you can go about planning to snare it and engage it and successfully remove it from the body, and also cases where you're not going to be able to do that because sometimes uh, the back end of the docking button will be trapped underneath the tricuspid valve and render that inaccessible. And we're learning from this. Uh, Dr. Wilkoff has always taught us that being extractors makes us better implanters. And so the lessons that are learned from the extraction side of these leadless devices, I think, are over time going to help us be better implanters so we're more intelligently positioning the device to allow ourselves at least the future option for uh, retrievability. And then, of course, the things that we're very excited about, which, you know, the, the human trials would be on the horizon, the dual chamber leadless device, the ability to have rate adaptive atrial pacing and eye-to-eye -eye communication between atrial and ventricular devices. That's something that will get us beyond the single chamber use case, uh, which would have been useful for this particular patient because the patient was in uh, permanent atrial arrhythmia, uh, but, but, you know, really getting into that sinus node group of patients. And then something we're equally excited about, the ability to have our cake and eat it too, the ability to combine the leadless uh, technology with the subcutaneous ICD and get away from the transvenous leads, to have a defibrillation capability, but also to be able to back that up with uh, bradycardia backup pacing, especially in a post-shock period. And for those selected patients that would, may benefit from ATP, the ability to have commanded delivery of ATP from the leadless device, excuse me, from the SICD to the leadless uh, device. So we're very excited about the upcoming uh, human trials of those technologies. And then, of course, I want to mention that something that Dr. Wilkoff had alluded to in yesterday afternoon's session with the endocardial leadless LV pacing. Uh, as he mentioned, this is a, a bit of a, of a, of a, of a, um, you know, a system that's a little bit awkward in the sense that there's a subcutaneous component, but there's also the endovascular components. But the idea that you can deliver endocardial LV lead stimulation and use this in a targeted response of a CRT non-responder, uh, that is a very intriguing uh, possibility. And this is something that is in clinical trial right now, so hopefully uh, we'll have results on that and um, know where this type of technology sort of fits into the fold of all the things uh, that we've been discussing. So on that note, I will uh, conclude uh, my remarks. And again, thank you all so much for your participation in the conference. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. We welcome your comments and feedback. Please contact us at heart at ccf.org. Like what you heard? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen at clevelandclinic.org slash loveyourheartpodcast. podcast.